Good morning, everybody. We are continuing to take a break from our usual diet of expository Bible sermons to take a look at where we've been, historically speaking, and what we might learn from that. And we're looking at an era that we might call the birth of Christendom, A.D. 312 to 590. Three weeks ago, we looked at the conversion of Constantine, a, a watershed moment in the history of the church, the best thing or the worst thing that has ever happened to the church, depending on who you ask, or possibly and probably actually the best thing and the worst thing that has ever happened to the church. Almost overnight, the church going from illegal, persecuted, underground, to the official state religion of the Holy Roman Empire. And we saw how this change, with this, many Christians began to think of themselves and about their faith in terms that really were more pagan than biblical. And the challenge of the last few weeks has been, we need to check our frames of reference. So today we're going to look at a phenomenon that, for us as Anglicans, or perhaps as Protestant Christians, we might not know much about. And that phenomenon is papacy, the existence of popes. So then, with respect to papacy, we might start by asking, who is the pope? And then ask, how did this state of affairs come about? And then finally ask, what can we learn from this to help us in our Christian walk today? So, firstly, <clears throat> who is the Pope? Well, one answer is Francis. Pope Francis is the Pope. I remember uh, speaking to uh, the grandfather of a student when I was chaplain at Swan Valley Anglican Community School, and this grandfather was an atheist, or perhaps he was agnostic, I'm not really sure. He just said, I'm not a religious man myself, he told me. But he'd been appalled by a conversation he'd recently had with his grandson, who could not, the grandfather found out, could not answer the question, is the Pope Catholic? And indeed, the vast majority of young people here in Australia today will have little or no idea about what the words Pope or Catholic mean. And actually, that is understandable, if perhaps regrettable. Because you see, as that grandfather knew, ever since European colonization, a good quarter of us as Australians have been Roman Catholic. And that therefore, whoever the Pope is, who the Pope is, and what he has to say, that has a significant impact on Australian cultural, social, and political life. So who the Pope is, that's important. But hold on, more than that, more to the point for us today, who is the Pope theoretically? And a Roman Catholic answer is, is something like this. The Pope is the supreme head of the church on earth. He's the top bishop in charge of all bishops, indeed, indeed in authority over all other Christians, every other Christian everywhere in the world. The chief Christian 
the boss of the church, end of story, that's who the Pope is. And the period in history that we're looking at, the birth of Christendom, A.D. 312 to 590, saw that idea come into being. The invention of popes. So then, how did this state of affairs come about? Well, last year, and in actual fact it was exactly last year, on this weekend, last year, I gave a talk called Bishops, Priests, and Deacons. And in that talk, we thought about how in the New Testament, there is a wide variety of patterns of leadership between different churches that we meet there in the New Testament. In some places in the New Testament, it would appear that leadership is somewhat fluid and organic. People simply doing things as they had opportunity in line with their natural and spiritual giftings. In other places that we meet in the New Testament, there was clearly the need for a more structured approach. People being commissioned or ordained into various recognized roles or offices. And with respect to such offices or leadership roles, when it comes to the governing of the church, the New Testament uses three words. Uh, presbyteros, uh, or elders, sometimes translated priests. Episcopos, or overseers, traditionally translated bishops. And diakonos, or deacons, or ministers. In the New Testament, these three words are used in different ways in different places and somewhat fluidly. In some places, the three words are used interchangeably. In other words, they mean the same thing. In other places, these words are associated with quite different roles and responsibilities. And last year, we saw how within a very short space of time after the close of the New Testament, there quickly came to be one settled pattern of ordained ministry right across the Roman Empire. And that pattern was this. Each congregation within a city had one or more priests and deacons, probably quite a few priests and deacons. But each city had one and only one bishop who was in charge of all of the different churches, all of the different congregations within his city. And we remember that during those early years, congregations were meeting either in the houses of the richest member, typically, or perhaps in simple meeting rooms, hired perhaps, or purpose-built. And whenever bishops might come together, they met as equals. What the conversion of Constantine made possible for the first time ever was for all of the bishops of the entire known world to meet together in councils or synods. And two weeks ago, we heard about the very first global synod in the town of Nicaea, in what is modern-day Western Turkey, in the year AD 325, the Council of Nicaea. Now, the first step 
in creating a pope is to recognize that whenever equals meet together, some are more equal than others. Where you have a group of masters, you need a headmaster. Where you have a group of teachers, you need a principal teacher. And where you have a group of ministers, you need a prime minister. Four legs good, two legs better. So soon after the conversion of Constantine, the Bishop of Rome became first among equals for four reasons. Firstly, Rome was, in the early 300s, the imperial city, the so-called eternal city. Seeing it was as it was the capital city of the Roman Empire, it was natural. If indeed entirely unbiblical, it was natural for the bishop of the first city of the empire to have a certain unequaled gravitas or authority. Secondly, the, the church in Rome was a big church. And I'm quite familiar with the idea today, the idea that the senior pastor of a big multi-congregational, multi-staff church just got to be, humanly speaking, just got to have more kudos and say-so than, say, the pastor of a little country parish in the sticks where the membership numbers five old people and a dog. So how big was the church in Rome? Well, by the middle of the 200s, by the middle of the 3rd century AD, its membership was probably around 30,000 people, with around 150 clerics, priests and deacons, and around 1,500 widows and poor, poor, poor people on their books that they were looking after. And that's, that's megachurch, really, by anybody's standards. So there's two reasons. Rome was the imperial city, and it was a big church. The third reason, is that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were martyred in Rome. Jesus' apostle to the Jews and Jesus' apostle to the Gentiles both martyred in Rome. And that meant, to be sure, that the church of Rome felt that Peter and Paul were theirs in a very special way. And actually, that's deeply insightful in a way that we might not get. The, the blood of God's servants is unimaginably precious in God's sight. And the blood of Peter and the blood of Paul, together with many thousands of other martyrs, had been shed on the mission field of the city of Rome. Fourth, the church in Rome claimed a Bible text to prove, theologically, that the Bishop of Rome must be the supreme bishop. You see, three times in the Gospels, uh, Matthew 16, Luke 22, and John 21, three times in the Gospels, Jesus puts Peter in charge of his fellow disciples, head of the church, and he renames Simon, son of Jonah, as Peter meaning rock. And Jesus continues, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, it's worth noting that in the book of Acts, Peter is obviously 
the lead disciple, the, the spokesperson, and the one who ultimately was in charge from a, the ascension of Jesus through to the day of Pentecost and into the early years of the church, Peter is actually the, the boss of the church. But by Acts chapter 15 and thereafter, James, the brother of Jesus, is the chief spokesperson for the church in Jerusalem. And whilst both Peter and Paul are recognized as apostles, there is no apparent need in the New Testament to find or recognize a chief apostle or his successor. That, that's just not a thought that occurs to any of the biblical writers. Jesus is the head, and he will build his church. Nevertheless, the church in Rome argued that Peter was always the head honcho, and that his authority must be the legitimate inheritance of whoever succeeds him in that office, Bishop of Rome. In other words, the Bishop of Rome, whomsoever he might be, continues to be the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Titles, authorities, awards, offices, they must surely be inherited by someone, right? Well, just to point out the obvious, that's pagan thinking and not biblical thinking with respect to leadership and authority. It's an idea that makes about as much sense as, say, claiming that King Henry VIII is the supreme head of the church in England. In other words, it's dangerous nonsense. So that's four reasons why the Bishop of Rome was considered top bishop, boss of all Christians everywhere, pope. And by the way, the, the word pope is derived from the Latin word uh, papa, uh, father. And we're nearly there. We're nearly there now with respect to understanding the concept of Pope and how these, uh, this state of affairs came about. But in order to understand um, the Pope deal even more fully, we need to meet Leo, Bishop of Rome from 440 AD to his death in 462 AD. Sometimes Leo, Bishop Leo, is, is known as Leo the Great or Pope Leo I. Leo was born a Roman aristocrat, and he was deaconed in his early 30s. He became well known across the empire for various theological contributions he made to the discussions and disagreements of his day. He was a staunch supporter of theological orthodoxy and a capable opponent of heretics. And so he was unanimously voted in as Pope by the people of the Church of Rome upon the death of the previous Pope. Now, during this time in history, the Roman Empire was crumbling. It was a mere shadow of its former self. And in AD 452, Attila the Hun was advancing on Rome. 
coming with his armies out of Central Asia. He'd already advanced up the Danube into Western Europe, causing panic and mass migration. Crossing the Alps brought him into northern Italy, and from there he and his troops advanced south, meeting little resistance. The Italian military fled, as did the general populace. The emperor in, in Rome commissioned Bishop Leo as his ambassador. And off Leo went to meet with Attila the Hun on the river Po. Now, as it happened, Attila the Hun had already probably realized that he'd overstretched himself. His own troops were severely weakened by disease and famine. And he probably already realized that he needed to withdraw. But the Italians didn't know that. So when Bishop Leo pleads for mercy and peace and for the safety of Rome, and when that was agreed to, and when Attila the Hun turns around and leaves, withdraws from Italy entirely, well, it made Bishop Leo a bit of a superstar. Three years later, something very similar happened all over again. And it happened with the Vandals. Now, the Vandals were a North, northern European tribe, possibly Scandinavian, possibly Germanic. They themselves had been driven south by the Goths. Another northern European tribe, possibly Scandinavian, possibly Germanic. Wherever they went, um, the Vandals caused destruction and despair by applying unsightly graffiti to public and private buildings using spray cans. And the Goths mainly hung out in nightclubs, listening to depressing music and wearing dark eye makeup. Well, actually, no, just so you know, that's a joke, sorry. But the Vandals, now a nomadic warrior tribe, they came down out of northern Europe, down through Spain, and they settled inside the Roman Empire at its weakest point, which was North Africa. At the end of March, AD 455, Genseric, king of the Vandals, set sail with a hundred ships from North Africa, from a land that today is called Tunisia. They landed north of the Tiber, creating panic in Rome. The Visigoths, the Western Goths, they, they, they had invaded and destroyed Rome only 45 years earlier in, in AD 410. So the, the, the Romans, they, they knew what was coming, and they were frightened. In the face of this new threat, Italian, flu, Italian troops fled their stations. So did the emperor, who was murdered in his haste to escape. The city of Rome was in chaos when Gesenic and his marines entered the city on the 2nd of June, 455 AD. But he was met at the city gate by Bishop Leo, who was leading a column, not of soldiers, but of priests. The two men, King Gesenic and Bishop Leo, they were about the same age, mid-60s. King Gesenic on horseback, Leo on his knees. Leo begged for mercy, pleading with him to restrain his troops and not burn the city, and he offered him money. King Gesenic's response was simple, was simple, 14 days looting, 
And with that, he turned his horse around and rode away. And the, the vandals thereafter systematically stripped the city. Public buildings and private dwellings, churches and temples, they stripped it of everything of any conceivable worth. Statues, artworks, precious metals, non-precious metals, marble and bronze. Everything was loaded onto the vandal ships and they left back to Carthage, a, a place that today is a seaside suburb in the city of Tunis, Tunisia. And after they left, Bishop Leo presided at a solemn service of thanksgiving. It had been a terrible humiliation, but it could have been so much worse. There had been no massacre, no bloodshed, and the city had not been burnt to the ground. And Bishop Leo gave glory to God for all this. But uh, at that solemn service of thanksgiving, very, very few Christians were present. And uh, Leo said, one is ashamed to say this, and yet one dares not be silent. You value the devils higher than the apostles. Who has restored security to the city? Who has liberated it, preserved it from massacre? Turn to the Lord. Acknowledge the miracles he has manifestly wrought on our behalf and describe our liberation not as the godless do to the influence of the stars, but to the ineffable mercy of the Almighty who has softened the rage of the barbarians. So Bishop Leo gave glory to God, making no reference to his own role in the crisis. But, but he didn't need to. For the second time, Bishop Leo, and not the emperor, had shouldered responsibility for the city and stuck out his neck and been successful in obtaining mercy. The authority of Peter seemed to be manifestly present in his ministry. Thus, the world of that time was one to the idea that the Bishop of Rome was the supreme head of Christ's church on earth, the Pope. And that idea became dynamite when it was mixed with the other assumptions of Christendom, especially the idea that all citizens of Christendom are Christians because you're born in Europe, you're a Christian. For Christianity is the official religion of the empire. Thus, kings and emperors, being Christian simply by virtue of their birth, were all under the authority of the Pope. Thus, the idea of Pope, the notion of a supreme head of Christ's church on earth, a church uh, that is as comfortable in politics as it is in theology, would in turn and in time make the Pope the most powerful man on earth. Kingmaker, emperor maker. But that's a story for another time. What can we learn from this to help us in our Christian walk today? Well, firstly, most of us will have Roman Catholic friends, and many of us come from Roman Catholic backgrounds, and some of our children go to Roman Catholic schools. 
today might help us to understand better the Roman Catholic faith. How it is that they understand the Pope to be the supreme head of Christ's church on earth. We can now see that the assumptions behind this notion are indeed a mix of pagan ideas about leadership combined with biblical ideas about Peter. Second, we can perhaps be a little bit more self-aware as Anglicans. For the Anglican Church, at the time of her conception, sought to replicate the leadership pattern of Roman Catholicism rather than to critique it. Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury during the reign of King Henry VIII, he advanced the notion that the King of England, rather than the Pope, should be the supreme head of Christ's church in England. Those who refused to sign the parliamentary bill making it so, those who refused to sign, most famously Sir Thomas More, died. Then Sir Thomas Cromwell helped uh, King Henry VIII vandalize the monasteries and churches of England, stripping them of their assets and wealth and land. As supreme head of the church in England, no one in that land was free to disagree with King Henry VIII on matters of theology. That was treason. One could perhaps try to persuade him, but never to contradict him. He was, as supreme head, infallible. For the notion of a supreme head has always meant one who settles disputes about, the, about Christian truth whenever the nature of Christian truth is being disputed. Queen Elizabeth I thus became supreme governor of the church because, being a woman, she couldn't be head. And yet, as sovereign, she'd inherited that authority and position. So too today, Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Australia, holds the titles Defender of the Faith and Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Under her is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Under him is the Primate of Australia. Under him is Archbishop of Perth, Kay Goldsworthy, and, and her assistant bishops, Jeremy and Kate. Under them are the priests and deacons of this diocese, including me, who is absolutely nothing at all remotely like first among equals. So be very careful telling your Roman Catholic friends that you don't believe in the Pope, lest your friend point out to you that you too have a Pope and that she's a woman. I'm just saying. So then, perhaps we can ask ourselves, does the church on earth need a supreme leader at all? And if so, what should their ministry look like? And if not, if we don't need a supreme leader, then why not? Third, Recognizing that the Bible leaves many, many questions about 
forms of leadership unanswered, we should nevertheless be very clear in our minds that the Bible answers very clearly the question about the nature of leadership. Yes, the manifest authority of Bishop Leo was in his preparedness to speak the truth and to oppose false teaching and in his preparedness to stick out his neck for his people, in his preparedness to be crucified for his people when they were under threat. And seeing as Jesus was crucified before the creation of the universe, wherever the crucifixion principle is obeyed, willingly or unwittingly, there is enormous power and authority manifest there. For Jesus said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So then, whatever stations or circles or positions we might find ourselves in, we now know, without any question or doubt, we, we now know the way to greatness. And the Lord be with you all.